One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Namwali Serpel, author of The Furrows. Every time I have a dream that moves me or chills me or angers me, disgusts me, I feel very uh, sensitive to these things. I'm this sensitive about like movies and books too. I'm always the person gasping and crying in the movie theater. We'll be back with Namwale Serpel after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart, to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the First Draft community. You are hearing this episode today 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, 
ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with fiction writer, essayist, and critic Namwali Serpel. Her novel, The Furrows, was named a top 10 book of 2022 by the New York Times, a must-read book of 2022 by Time Magazine, and one of Oprah Magazine's favorite novels of the year. Serpel's first novel, Old Drift, won several awards, including the LA Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction. Her literary criticism book is called Seven Modes of Uncertainty, and her essay collection is called Stranger Faces, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. She was born in Zambia and moved to Maryland when she was eight. She has worked at a bookstore and as an editorial assistant and is now a tenured professor of English at Harvard University. Her novel, The Furrows, centers on Cassandra, who is 12, when the book opens. She witnesses the drowning of her younger brother, Wayne, when they are alone together at the beach. Wayne's body was never found, leading Cassandra on a journey of grief without absolute proof of death. She sees her brother everywhere she goes as she grows up, and one day she meets a man, also named Wayne, who is both familiar and strange at the same time. As Cassandra reckons with her loss, the Furrows asks the reader to look at grief, time, memory, mourning, and family expectations through her eyes. We began with Namwale Serpel talking about storytelling's relationship to grief. That's a great question because it allows me to juxtapose two different ways of thinking about the relationship between grief and storytelling. I think one of the ways as a a culture now and many cultures over the centuries think about grief is as a process. It happens as an effect with a cause, usually some kind of loss. And that rupture becomes something that we try to explain through narrative and that we also try to work through in ritual forms that have kind of stages that kind of tell a story. Some of that is telling a story about the thing you've lost or the person you've lost. But some of that is also about narrativizing for yourself exactly what happened and what we have survived. And you see this in very simple ways in the interest in stages of grief, right? What do we go through at each point in our grieving process? And There's sometimes theories that these stages happen all out of order, that they go back and forth, that they recur, but they have built into them this notion of an arc or a a kind of movement through time that moves hopefully towards some kind of reconciliation, uh, closure, we like to put it. But it seems to me that in my experience of grief, things are much less linear and much less narrative, much less able to be told as a story, and much more like a kind of uncanny rhythm. And one of the reasons that I ended up calling the novel an elegy is because it seemed to me that the relationship between grief and story was actually a relationship between grief and poetry. And it had to do with the way a poem doesn't necessarily move from beginning to end. A poem doesn't necessarily have stages or an endpoint. A poem has this quality of a rhythm that you're trying to capture and a set of images maybe that strike you or you move through. But there's no real message. There's no real story. Um, there's rather a kind of enactment of a feeling. 
When you were saying that, I was thinking a little bit about Sonny's Blues and how the music comes in and out Mm -hmm. of that story in the same way you're talking about the poetry and the rhythm. Um, Yeah. I'm assuming you've read it. Yes, yes. And song, I think, is another way of thinking about the way we relate to grief and to various emotional incidents in our lives, let's put it, or different kind of waves of feeling. One of the things I love about the blues in particular is the way that it carries a kind of irony that you can enact as you have a difference between the sound of the voice, which can sometimes be quite happy or jolly, and the content of what is being sung, which is can be really heartbreaking and melancholy. Billie Holiday is a great example of that. Um, but there are, you know, many, many others. And that doubleness is something that, again, is very key to the literary. Um, is something you can really model, I think, in a poem, um, but is also something that I, I try to do over the scale of a novel is to have this kind of contrast. So as you say, Cassandra is very invested in storytelling. Um, she re- tells her story over and over again. She's asked to tell her story by other people. People are very interested in narrativizing her grief. But what I'm doing with the form is quite different from what the characters are doing with each other. Yeah, it's kind of like what you were saying about the blues and the irony that it holds. It's like when you have grief, it's like we're living with this irony because our bodies are doing the same thing. We're still going to get coffee. We're still like showing up at work. But our whole inside is is like crumbling sand, like you sometimes had an image of young Wayne. Yeah, no, I think that uh, is a really good way to describe how most conscious experience feels for us. Um, It's also, for example, behind the notion of double consciousness as a racialized form of subjectivity in the world where you're both experiencing how other people perceive you, but you're also experiencing the world from within as a Negro and an American, as Du Bois famously put it. Double consciousness is obviously very important to the second half of the novel as well. But that doubleness of experience that's both, you know, in in the just kind of daily life of Black people um, and this doubleness of grief are just two versions, I think, of what it actually feels like to be human. And one of the reasons that I think the literary is so important, because it isn't just an account of what you feel or what you say. It's got this double layering that's going on because you can play with both the form and the content. Yeah. So you mentioned Cassandra. She's the main character. And when the book opens, we learn from her that her brother drowned. She's 12. He's seven. They're at the shore and he drowns and there's no body. She kind of passes out on the beach and was taken home by this mysterious man and a windbreaker. But she's really interested throughout the book about what it felt like. And she has different stories then later on of how he died because it's so like, it's so disassociating, I think to experience this grief without a body and to be this 12 year old self. And one of the things she describes in the waves is this thing called the furrow and the furrow is sort of the trench in between. Is that correct? How I explained it. Yes, yes. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I I call them the great grooves in the water, the furrows. So in some sense, it's simply a figure or a metaphor for waves, but it also has this quality of repetition and this notion of parallel lines or parallel lives. And it recurs later in the novel to describe furrows in the land, which is how it's usually uh, used. So there's a, a an attempt to use this larger scale conceit as a way to describe the form of the novel itself, which is, as you said, involves these repetitions of loss. Yeah. And she, you know, she sort of has this um, realization because we're deep in her head that, you know, he was lost to the furrows, but the truth is she is. Mm. I mean, I think, 
They both are, yes. right? To, yeah, I, but I think this is, you know, I, I, I say in this description where she, she has these moments where she addresses her little brother, uh, which is a technique that she has picked up from one of her many therapists. Um, and she says, dear Wayne, um, the world reclaimed you, took you back into its endless, um, its endless folding, I think I say. And there's this, and later on in the novel, her father says, death is everywhere for us. Didn't you know that? And this quality of uh, a kind of tenuousness of life, a, ten, a precarity, you're always sort of on the verge of being thrown into or across the furrows into another form of existence or into a non-existence, I think haunts both her and, and the other two main characters in the novel, uh, Wayne, an adult man who she meets when she's older and a man named Will who's narrating his story from prison. There's a sense of, you could always become, as Will puts it, a ghost to the life you should have been living. Mm. Yeah, I think that's in a way how she does experience life. You have a line in there somewhere about um, the unreality that you feel when you when you are in grief. That you're, you're writing about how when you are in that stage, that you're in this whole other realm of existence. And I wonder, so writing so deeply about grief and experiencing your own loss, when you would sit down to write, like, were you in this other reality as well? I mean, I think when I write, I'm always in another reality. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons I'm a writer. Um, I've written a nonfiction essay about the losses I've experienced, actually two different ones, uh, one about my late sister and one about my late mother. And those were very different. They were elegies in a, a kind of genuine sense in that they were attempts to capture the specificity of whom I lost. And figuring out the best way to do that, the best form to do that was a very difficult process, but also a very revelatory one. So the essay about my sister is called Beauty Tips for My Dead Sister. And she was very into fashion and taught me things about how to carry my body in the world and how to make it look a certain kind of way that I think about every day. And it's this kind of ritual of mourning in reenacting the things that she taught me and even hearing her voice in my head that I realized at a certain point I, I had been doing for, for years since she died. And with my mother, I wrote a piece that was about our family home in Lusaka growing up and about the gardening that she would do there and about the specific way that a house when you remember it can feel like an echo chamber of voices and specifically laughter that has sounded through its walls um, or against its walls and there it felt like that was the best way it was to sort of construct a, a small house about the house and put my mother's laughter inside it and I was thinking very much about Gertrude Stein and um, the, the line, there's no there, there is actually about her childhood home in Oakland, which had burned down. And so the sense of, of trying to capture what is not there um, and what is also there. And both of those experiences were very much, you know, I had to, I had to enter into those forms. I had to enter into memory and I had to enter into the voices of those who were lost. And I found that very emotional. I mean, I, I think I found it, it was a form of grieving. It was a form of elegy. It was a form of eulogy. But when I was writing The Furrows, which is a work of fiction, it was a very different kind of process. And I was not placing into the novel 
anything true uh, in the kind of literal factual sense. Rather, it was I was allowing these characters and the story, which had come to me partly in a dream, to tell me about them, to tell me about what they felt and the kinds of ways that their experience resonated with mine, but also the kinds of ways their experience is very different from mine. So it was much more like entering into another world, whereas with the nonfiction essays, that was diving back into my own world, if that makes sense. It does. And it's really interesting to hear that part of this came in a dream. And is that common for you? It is. Yes. Um, I think of dreams as kind of free fiction uh, in a, in many, in like, in a couple of different senses. One, it's free because you don't have to pay for a ticket or pay for a book. Um, it's free also of the kind of paralyzing anxiety or self-consciousness of creation where you sit down in front of the blank page. Instead, it's like your mind just projects this wonderful movie <laughs> inside your mind, um, or inside your head. And I think it feels very free to me also in the sense that it's not bounded by the laws of time and space, nor even emotional logic or just basic logic, right? People appear in other people. A person can go from being a child to being their adult self. Who you are can vary, what, what age you are or what, what your hair looks like or where you are it's like you get to teleport everywhere you know so it's this kind of wonderfully free space for me and every time I have a dream that moves me or chills me or angers me disgusts me I feel very uh, sensitive to these things I'm this sensitive about like movies and books too I'm always the person gasping and crying in the movie theater um but every time that happens to me in a dream, I wake up and I, I feel like I've been given a gift. And very often my effort is to try to replicate that feeling on the page. Um, I've just been writing this lecture about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and she talks about her first image of the novel, which ends up making its way into, I think, chapter five of the the scientists you know hanging over his creation the creations stirring to life um and she describes it as a waking dream and she says you know i I saw with shut eyes but great you know vividness this scene and it's this it, it feels like uh this kind of connection over time back to this very young woman finding her her story because she had writer's block at the time finding her story in in a dream it it feels very moving to me that this is how poetic inspiration happened back then as well the publishing industry is a system books are mirrors into people's experiences and in season two of missing pages We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's interesting to hear you, um, the way that you express yourself, and I'll explain in a minute, but random question. Have you ever done the Myers-Briggs test? I don't believe in that. <laughs> I think I've tried it like back in the day and I always got different things. So, Because <laughs> the third sort of, I mean, whatever, it's a Myers-Briggs test. Let's <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But the third thing, they it's like a binary, all these options is yeah. if you're a thinking person or a feeling person. And when you mm. have been expressing yourself, you have so often said in our conversation, I feel. And so mm. I sense like what a feeling person you are, but it also is very important to the book. So you're not mm -hmm. saying I think, you're coming from like a deep sense of feeling inside of you. So I wanted to yeah. ask you, um, because it's important to the book, I want to ask yeah. you about the book, but I also want to ask you about you, like the difference between feeling and thinking and how you experience the world that way, if that makes sense to you. This kind of dualism about the mind and the body, I think, kind of haunts us to this day, even though it was sort of conceived, you know, by Descartes centuries ago. And I feel similarly about thinking and feeling. I'm drawn in my work as a critic toward trying to trace the experience of reading something, which sometimes gets called a phenomenology. So I'm trying to account for the implications of the text aesthetically, but also affectively in terms of feeling. And then also I'm very interested in the political and ethical implications. So it's this very like holistic understanding of all the different things that literature or a work of art can do to a person or to a, a, an audience. To me, I often think of William James, um, brother to Henry James and one of the fathers of modern psychology. William James has this wonderful essay that's kind of about the feeling of rationality. And he talks about how we think of rationality as being unfeeling or not having a feeling, but it clearly has a feeling. It has this kind of excitement of discovery. It has this quality of um, liveliness, right? That you wouldn't necessarily attribute to say the feeling of poetry. And it has this uh, kind of cheerfulness, this, you know, this, and you can see it in, in you know, various philosophers and scientists, this, this kind of um, really optimistic sense that we can figure things out. And he, he, he just points out that these are feelings. These are not necessarily like the truths about the best way to perceive things. And I often think about that when I'm working with this difference between thinking and feeling, which is, you know, something that's very on my mind right now in, in teaching Frankenstein as well, because feeling and thinking are not divorced necessarily. And you can go in the other direction as well, which is to say, it's not just that thought has a kind of feeling, but also that feeling can be a way of thinking. I think uh, in the novel, especially the way that Cassandra feels about the loss of her brother becomes a way of thinking about her place in the world. It's the, the two don't seem to me to be entirely divorceable. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And there's a way that so many things that we've talked about thus far are all converging in a way because Cassandra's family, her and her mother and father, didn't have a body to mourn, it takes grief in this whole other trajectory. And I think that's one of the points of your book. I think that um, 
duality in a way that you were talking about of the consciousness you feel as how other people see you as a, a black person and how you feel inside is also kind of wrapped up in this dualism. This It's like a schism between mm-hmm. body and mind, a schism between how you feel inside, a schism in consciousness. And, and that's what you did in your book, too. You had this schism between points of view where it changes from yes. her to will. So I don't know if there's really a question in there, but I'm just saying I see that. Yeah. And how, yeah. what's your reaction? <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's I think this is my my doubleness book. I sometimes call it my repetition book, but it is also my doubleness book. And one of the things that it tries to do is set things that are usually put in a binary next to each other or sort of, yeah, I think that's just the way to put it. They put, put some next to each other. And one of the images that's been coming to mind a lot for me is of the way that two strings, uh, strung on a on a bow or on an instrument can be next to each other and not necessarily touch each other but if you pluck one of them the other one might vibrate and there's a kind of resonance between the two even if they might operate on different tracks or might be divided in some way so this you know one of the things i'm trying to do is account for but also replicate the resonance between separate things or seemingly separate things. Yeah. And I think part of being separate and part of what we talked about in the beginning with grief is that there isn't a clear outcome. It's not like you're just healed from grief. It's not that you wake up one day and everything's resolved. So I think your book is also asking its reader and asking its character to live with this constant ambiguity and this constant unknowing. And we don't like that. (laughs) <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I've learned people are very um, almost resentful, I think, about the extent to which the book makes them feel things that are uncomfortable or dark. Uh, because I'm reinscribing this very catastrophic loss and describing a very kind of dark devolution of two young men into situations of great precarity and criminality even. I think readers feel that I'm asking them to go places that are very difficult. And I've been struck by two things. One is parents feel very feel it feel very unhappy reading the, the loss of this child. And to a certain, to in a kind of perverse way, I, I take it as a compliment because it meant it means that I made you feel something about the loss of this little black boy that might be not always accessible to us when we hear a news report about a kid being shot, often referred to as a man, even if he's you know twelve or thirteen years old, and. It also, I think, means that I I managed to present the violence that the family experiences, the violence that the child's body experiences in a way that was not gratuitous, that was not about shock effect and not about aesthetics, was not about making it pretty, but actually accessed what that feels like. And for me, that was the ultimate goal, you know, in, in, in trying to represent this in a, in a way that wasn't glib or um, flat or, you know, gory for its own sake. The other thing that has struck me is the extent to which being made to go through that feeling, to experience that feeling, makes people feel very uncomfortable if there's no resolution, as you said. And it's, it's interesting because this is how, this is how life works, right? We, we don't get justice. We don't get healing. We don't get closure necessarily for 
the losses that we undergo. But it also strikes me that there seems to be a sense that trauma must have an upshot or to put it more cynically, a payoff, especially in our artistic representations of it. Otherwise, it's simply not worth it. And I understand and empathize with that point of view because we're living in very traumatized times. We're living in a, especially now, in a space where it feels like daily we are afflicted with yet another blow to the social world, to our personal lives, to our actual bodies because of the pandemic. And so why would we want to undergo that in the form of a fiction? And my only hope is that by trying to capture this experience and not try to kind of glean some kind of payoff or message about it or provide some kind of catharsis or release or even distraction from it, I'm actually giving us the space to sit within that grief and not run from it. And again, sort of be together next to each other in it. Because I think that's the only hope that we have really of surviving it. And being in a safe space, so to speak, which is the fictional world that isn't going to actually reach out and harm you unless you get a paper cut, I think ought to give us a way to survive it. Nietzsche said something like this, like it, fiction allows us to stare at the, the darkest things about human life in order that we might survive them. Um, let me find that exact quote, actually, because I just sent it to two writers, to Yi Yun Lee and Garth Greenwell in an email. So, um, so this is Bernard Williams, the philosopher, British philosopher, and this is how he paraphrases Nietzsche. Nietzsche has already said in The Birth of Tragedy, this must lie in part in arts enabling us to contemplate such things in honesty without being crushed by them. When later Nietzsche said that we have art so that we do not perish from the truth, he did not mean that we use art in order to escape from the truth. He meant that we have art so that we can both grasp the truth and not perish from it. So I think in some sense, that's the, you know, that's the best justification I can have for writing such a dark book in such dark times. So talking about this binary, you have Cassandra, who we see from the time she's 12 to adulthood growing up, telling various stories, going to a parade of therapists, getting all these different um, points of view on how to supposedly, quote, heal um, and deal with her trauma, you know, going in and out of like different friends from college. And then her mom um, comes into money when her mom dies and she has this foundation called Vigil that helps people find lost children, basically, because the mom cannot really face that there's no body and doesn't maybe believe that Wayne's truly dead, that he's more missing. And in a way, he, he is missing. He's in this like other ether. And then the second half is this this juxtaposition with the, these two men, one that maybe took the name Wayne and then another um, Will. And that gets much more, that's also very dark and complicated. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that section, how that came to you and what um, what that binary, that part of the binary was important to explore. Yes. Um, so I understood relatively early on in the writing of the first half of the book that Cassandra was going to be kind of locked in these repetitions, these reenactments of how she lost her little brother. And as you say, this kind of parade of therapist after therapist and this kind of recursion back to the same impasse with her mother about what actually happened to baby Wayne as, you know, at seven years old. And at a certain point, I realized that one of the ways I needed to 
account for both the sense of loss and the sense of longing to reunite with the lost person was to be to was going to be to stage these possible reunions so Cassandra having lost her little brother when she was 12 and he was seven as an adult meets a man who feels familiar to her in certain kinds of ways and he has this a skin color that resembles what her brother's was and he has a kind of lanky frame the way her little brother was lanky and he has a widow's peak and at a certain point she finds out that his name is Wayne and in that moment there's a kind of recognition and it's the world explodes around them and I decided to repeat these moments of reunion as well so I have three losses and three reunions in the first half of the book and it became clear to me at a certain point that there was no getting out of this particular bind. There was no way for Cassandra to actually move forward because I had created a situation for her where there was no solution to the paradox or the ambiguity that structures her life. And I was in Berkeley uh, in my apartment there one morning waking up and looking at the ball and I remember exactly where I was and I thought oh the only way that this novel can move forward is with someone with a very different relationship to grief and it's going to be this man that she keeps meeting and we're going to move into his perspective and we're going to understand what he's looking for and what he's seeking out in the, his encounter with with Cassandra so I knew then that I needed to move into a new character in order for the novel to move forward, like literally to progress. And I thought, well, what is the, you know, having structured the first half very much along the lines of modernist repetitions, Stein, Beckett, Wolf, Faulkner, um, I thought, well, what genre is going to is going to like guarantee me forward movement and plot? And I thought, well, noir. <laughs> and I had been, I've long been a fan of Raymond Chandler and James Kane and Jim Thompson. I had just read No Country for Old Men. And so I was thinking about that genre anyway. And I decided to try to write the second half of the novel as a kind of neo-noir. A lot of my favorite films from the 90s are also these kind of neo-noirs. So that was the first version of the second half of the book, which I wrote uh, back, you know, in between 2008 and 2014 was when I wrote the first draft. And I, I then put the book in a drawer because it wasn't working. Something about the way I was putting these two stories next to each other wasn't quite capturing what I wanted to convey. And when I returned to it, one of my realizations was that noir wasn't right because it had that glibness that I told you I was trying to avoid. It has this kind of corniness, even a cheesiness, and it's very fun, but it wasn't allowing me to access the darkness in the adult Wayne's life because the way bodies and corpses manifest in a noir are like dummies on a movie set that get tossed into a trunk. And I needed to give some measure of actual horror, darkness to his story. So when I went back to revise the novel, I decided I wanted to go even further into the past for my genre. And I went to the origins of crime fiction and horror uh, in the work of Edgar Allan Poe. Because when I think when a genre is in its kind of instantiation in its earliest form is when it has more of the frisson of like elements circulating atmospherically in a kind of vortex. And they they crystallize and become a genre after, you know, a few decades. And they become recognizable. They become tropey. But in these early stages, 
things are much more amorphous and interesting. So I went back to the first doppelganger tale written in English by Edgar Allan Poe called William Wilson and decided to structure what had already been a, a you know, the section of the novel devoted to the question of doubles and doppelgangers, decided to structure it according to, to that tale. And this is where someone who had been a relatively minor character, a kind of double for Wayne, who gets used in this kind of Ocean's Eleven type plot, suddenly got a voice and a backstory. And he's talking to us from prison. And he's explaining how his life has become what it is and the way that he has been haunted by this kind of structural imposition of racism that mistakes black men for each other. And in rewriting the novel, his voice kind of pulled up. And because in the revision, I also turned the entire novel into the first person. One of my tasks became to distinguish the voices of these two doppelgangers, Wayne and Will in the second half of the book as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of directing a film with these three voices. You have Cassandra, and then you have Wayne and Will. And when you would go back to the page to revise, could you only do one section at once because the voices were so different? Yes, that's absolutely the case. When I was, when I first wrote the book, um, it was all in the third person and I felt like I had a lot more leeway to, you know, use the kind of imagery that I wanted and metaphors that I wanted and style that I wanted in both sections, but with a kind of slight shift in atmosphere because I was working in different genres. But when I went back and revised, I had to try as much as possible to strip out any of the flowery language from Wayne's point of view, because that's not how he would speak. And I had to try very hard also to give Will from prison a voice that was both plausible and mapped on to the concerns, images, uh, feelings, atmosphere of the original Poe story. Um, But that also signaled his class position as distinct from Wayne's. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Yeah, there's something in Will's experience. I mean, when he was a a child, maybe about the same age that Cassandra was when her brother died, he was basically accused of of hurting someone on the playground. And it wasn't him. But once he was in the system, he couldn't get out. And they both kind of had this experience where they, I mean, for Cassandra, it was closer to home but where they saw something they couldn't unsee Mm. and I was curious about that particularly in childhood you know versus trauma you experience as an adult if there's anything different for you as a fiction writer about that yes I mean I what I wanted to get at I think in both cases is the the strange intermingling of the drama of being a young person, a kind of a teenager or on the cusp of being a teenager. And it's like, you know, Will talks about how most of what went down in his high school or in his middle school actually um, happened out on the playground, right? And that all of the dramas there were, were so overwhelming so in his mind and he's deeply you know 
interested in this other kid who comes to the school and starts dressing like him and talking like him and, um, you know, wearing like his favorite belt and that sort of thing. And he, it's, you know, it's that echo game. And it's so, it seems like so silly, but when you're a kid, it's like, this is your daily life and it's driving you nuts. And then for that to suddenly tip into actual violence entering your world, it's, very disconcerting. There's almost a, a dissociation that happens in both cases, right? When Cassandra comes home from the beach and to, to the summer house where she and her parents are staying with Wayne in Delaware and her little brother's gone, you know, she gets in the bath, she combs her hair and she feels this kind of strange sense of importance. And I wanted to capture the the way that event or violence or disruption or something cutting into your daily drama as a kid isn't really something you can process right away. You're still kind of caught up in all of the regular things in your life, right? And so there's this way in which it confuses how you understand the world and how you understand yourself. So I, I, I think what I really wanted to get at is this sense of uncertainty about what, about what has actually happened and how to feel about it, how to actually respond to something that completely is from outside of your world I, I say in the description of one of um, Wayne's losses that it's like something has come at you from the side and plowed you into an entirely different existence, completely disrupts the kind of world of childhood, the magic of childhood that you're in. And I, I don't think we think of this in the same way when we think about, you know, suburban 12-year-olds and I very much wanted to capture the natural world that's all around Wayne and Cassandra in their uh, suburban upbringing. They're walking to school, there's dappled light, there's green leaves, there's trees everywhere, there's a park and there's a fair. And, and how different that is from the institution of the school where Will is growing up where, you know, the closet doors are nailed shut because there's rats in the classroom. There's, you know, they're, they're not allowed to drink water from the water fountains because things are really just rough in the school that he, he goes to. They're out on the playground being monitored. There's all these fights every day, physical fights. And yet that's still a childhood. That is still a world <laughs> of relative innocence. And violence can erupt into both of those worlds. And your reaction as a young person is not going to be necessarily so different just because you grew up seeing things. And Will says this, he says, you know, I, I saw violence like happen on TV and in the movies, but I had never seen anything like that in my real life. And I, I, I don't know if, I, I, one of my hopes was that the kind of disruption or shock of the entrance of violence into Cassandra's life would kind of ring over the whole novel so that when we read about Will's experience expecting something different, we would maybe understand as you have that something similar is happening to both of them, but it's taking them down incredibly different paths because of the different social worlds they're in. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So I thought I would read from Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, a particular passage that I ended up in a way engaging with quite deeply, reworking, rewriting, um, using images from in a very different part of my novel. Uh, the two novels are in relation to each other and Wolf has this wonderful description of style that helps um, explain, I think, some of the way I feel about 
inspiration, but also some of the way that I feel about working with her rhythms. So she says, style is a very simple matter. It is all rhythm. Once you get that, you can't use the wrong words. But on the other hand, here I am sitting after half the morning, crammed with ideas and visions and so on, and can't dislodge them for lack of the right rhythm. Now, this is very profound what rhythm is and goes far deeper than words. A sight and emotion creates this wave in the mind long before it makes words to fit it. And in writing, one has to recapture this and set this working, which has nothing apparently to do with words. And then as it breaks and tumbles in the mind, it makes words to fit it. So I'm going to read uh, a passage that the rhythm of which I tried to get inside of um, to make the words fit my vision. So this is from the time passes section of To the Lighthouse. Night after night, summer and winter, the torment of storms, the arrow-like stillness of fine weather held their court without interference. Listening, had there been anyone to listen, from the upper rooms of the empty house, only gigantic chaos streaked with lightning could have been heard tumbling and tossing as the winds and waves disported themselves like the amorphous bulks of leviathans whose brows are pierced by no light of reason and mounted one on top of another and lunged and plunged in the darkness or the daylight for night and day, month and year ran shapelessly together in idiot games until it seemed as if the universe were battling and tumbling in brute confusion and wanton lust aimlessly by itself. In spring, the garden urns, usually filled with wind-blown plants, were gay as ever. Violets came and daffodils, but the stillness and the brightness of the day were as strange as the chaos and tumult of night, with the trees standing there and the flowers standing there, looking before them, looking up, yet beholding nothing eyeless and so terrible. And then I was going to read the passage that I wrote to, and reworked a lot <laughs> to answer your other question in thinking about this combination of the sublime, the violent frenzy of the sea and the eeriness of the beautiful, the calm, bright, pretty light shot. And then the bridge is swaying visibly. The suspension cables shift boldly against the sky and the headlights of the cars driving across it scatter like bits of glass. It all happens so fast we can barely hear the screaming brakes and hooting horns and crushing crashes. And now there's thunder, even though the sunset clouds, the color of violets and roses and daffodils are placid in their ornate heap. And that's because the thunder isn't in the sky, it's in the ground. The column beneath us shudders. You tighten your arms around me. With a heaving groan, the whole edifice bursts pell-mell, mortar and concrete. Hell blares into our ears with a blast of grainy wind. Hell blares into our ears with a blast of grainy wind. We cower and tuck our heads and see the four stone women at our feet, their stone hands cupping their stone faces, but beholding nothing, eyeless, terrible. The column to our right topples, the column to our right topples with a bellow. I clutch your arms to my chest with one hand, and with the other I point for you to look, look, look out at the water, its busyness and tumult, the waves disporting themselves with abandon. What hand has reached in and turned the world over? Beasts gyre to the surface of the sea, their skin slick as oil, their amorphous bulk. Leviathans, brows unpierced by reason, that roll and tumble over each other, that mount through the black waters of which they seem made that plunge about in, in absurd, shapeless games, as if the universe were battling itself in brute confusion and lust, aimlessly, wantonly. Do you want to say anything more about that? Well, you can hear that, you know, I've picked up a few of Wolf's words, um, some of her diction, amorphous, leviathan, bulks, uh, the violets and daffodils, but they're applying to very different things. They're applying to, you know, clouds rather than flowers. They're applying to real animals. Insofar as I say, you can see beasts um, rather than a description of the waves. And so I'm kind of shifting metaphoric register, but what I'm trying to capture is this combination, as I said, of the sublime and the beautiful, this feeling like you're staring at a JMW Turner painting, you know, that's depicting 
this beautiful sunset and the sea. Um, but then someone sort of set it on fire from behind and it's curling and blackening. And I wanted to give this double sense, this feeling, this rhythm, as she puts it. Um, and so I wrote out that passage of Wolf's and then kind of wrote my way through it and discarded some of her words, flipped some of her passages, uh, changed her syntax around, just trying to, to keep that feeling um, of, of the two things pressed up right against each other. Where do you write? Um, wherever I can. <laughs> but um, I, I mostly need a flat surface, which can be my lap, uh, my laptop, and hopefully a shaft of sunlight. I like to write in the afternoons. I sometimes write outside. I like to feel a little bit drowsy. And so whatever conditions can best suit those elements is where I write. I, I, I like to be as unselfconscious as possible. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I mean, I'm a professor of English literature, so it's, I don't think there is a way to get away from writing. I'm, I, I'm very interested in film um, and, you know, good television as well. And some of the criticism that I do has to do with visual artifacts. So in some sense, I suppose that's, that's getting away from writing, but in another sense, it's also moving me toward writing something later. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It has varied over the years. It was my best friend in college. Then it was my best friend in graduate school. Then it was my best friend out in California, who all three of whom are editors. Uh, along the way, it was sometimes my sister. Um, and now it's my partner. How have you dealt with rejection? By persevering despite myself. So upon receiving very intense rejection when I was in my 20s, I resolved not to keep writing and was walking to campus the next day and saw a woman huddled under a bush uh, to my right in the snow. And I thought, oh my God, she must be freezing cold and I hope she's okay. And then I realized it was just a shadow. And as I kept walking, I started inventing a story about this woman and why she was hiding under the bush. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm just going to keep doing this with my brain, <laughs> even if my will is not in it. So maybe I should just write the things I think down. Maybe I won't publish them, but the writing itself seems to want to happen, whether or not it's been rejected by the wider world. And what is your favorite word? I don't think that... I can answer that question. So I'm going to answer another question, which is what is one of my least favorite words? And I'm going to posit that one of my least favorite words is the word favorite <laughs> because <laughs> I feel like it applies a kind of binary thinking to the question of language. And it also fixes things in time as though there's one favorite, as opposed to something that can seep in and out of being a favorite. And it also privileges one word over all the others. And I feel in my deepest spirit, I have a kind of democratic approach to language. I love all words. I don't even feel very comfortable thinking about censorship, banning words. So I wouldn't ban the word favorite ever, but I think it's among all the other words, just as beautiful, just as necessary, just as ugly, just as majestic as all the other words that you might want to use at any one time. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. I really appreciate it as well. If you like today's show with Namwali Serpel, author of The Furrows, check out my interview with Celeste Ng on her novel, Everything I Never Told You. We talked about identity within a family structure and the world at large, 
writing pages that won't make it into the final book simply to figure out who a character is, and getting arguments right on the page. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Peter Orner, Peter Turchi, and Stephanie Feldman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.